Hello, and welcome to episode 19 of the About IBD podcast. I'm your host, Amber Tresca. I was diagnosed with ulcerative colitis in 1989, and after 10 years of uncontrolled disease, I had J pouch surgery in 1999. I am the IBD expert at verywell.com, which I've been doing, believe it or not, since it was about.com in 2000. I don't have a guest today. This episode is just all about me. And that's because I'm doing the IBD advocacy tag that was started by my friend Meg at the Front Butt YouTuber. At the end of the episode, I will tag someone else and it will be their turn to answer the questions in whatever format they choose to do it in, whether that is a video or a blog or maybe even another podcast. We'll see how it goes. So let's get started on the IBD advocacy tag questions. I found Megan's first question to be interesting. The question is, what form of IBD do you have? And for most people, I think that would be a pretty quick answer. And the answer would be ulcerative colitis or Crohn's disease or maybe indeterminate colitis. But you'll notice when I open an episode, I say I was diagnosed with ulcerative colitis in 1989. That is a very specific choice of words on my part because it's factual. I was diagnosed with ulcerative colitis at that time. It's rather a bone of contention in the IBD community as to how to refer to oneself after having J-pouch surgery for ulcerative colitis. But somehow there's this idea that J-pouch surgery is curative. It is not. And that is the case because IBD is a autoimmune condition or as it's more and more being referred to, it is an immune-mediated condition. And what this means is that we can remove the body part that was affected by the condition, but that doesn't mean that the disease is gone. The disease is in your genes, and it was turned on by what we think is one or more environmental triggers. So that's not something that we can get rid of just because we lose our colon and or our rectum, or in my case, most of my rectum, and also you lose your appendix when you lose your colon. So I don't really say that I have ulcerative colitis. Like I don't put those words together in that way. Upon being asked which form of IBD do I have, I'm going to say I have IBD. If you think of IBD as a spectrum rather than two very distinct buckets, I think it's an easier way to understand what I'm trying to get at. And when I think of a spectrum, I think of color a lot of times. And if you think of the spectrum of color, your Roy G. Biv the red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, violet. You can't be in two places on that spectrum at the same time. You're red, 
or your violet or your green, wherever you're at at that point. If you think of the two ends of the spectrum being Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis, you might have an IBD that is closer to the Crohn's disease side, or you might have IBD that is closer to the ulcerative colitis side of the spectrum. If you think about it that way, it leads you to understand that Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis are almost kind of BS labels, honestly. There might be hundreds of diseases that fall under the IBD spectrum. That explains a lot if you think about it. Why is it that you cannot give everyone with Crohn's disease one drug or one class of drug and they all do better? That's because not all Crohn's disease is the same. You can't do that with ulcerative colitis either. Not everyone is going to respond to the same drug in the same way. It gets even more complicated when you add the surgeries to the mix because, yes, I evicted the body part that was being affected by my ulcerative colitis, but the disease hasn't left me. That's not to say that J-Pouch isn't an incredible surgery, and it certainly gave me my life back. And it saved my life, if you think about it. But that doesn't mean that the disease is gone. There's all sorts of extra-intestinal manifestations that can still occur. And I think that there are things that I put up with and that other J-Pouchers put up with. And I say put up with. However, I'm still grateful every day that I'm still here and that I was a candidate for J-Pouch surgery and that I had an amazing surgeon who did a wonderful job on mine because my J-Pouch functions really, really well. Even here we are um, 19 years later. So now your question is, why do we have the labels? Why do we have Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis, and indeterminate colitis? Well, when you think about when these diseases were described and it was, you know, I mean, I don't have the data in front of me, but people were described hundreds of years ago with the symptoms of what we now might think could be uh, a form of IBD. And of course, it became more formalized with Burl Crohn and other physicians. Uh, at the time, they called it ileitis, and then it became Crohn's disease. That was not something that Dr. Crohn wanted to have happen, but that's the way that it worked out. So you had these conditions that were uh, being sort of independently understood and named, and then everything came together under the umbrella of calling it inflammatory bowel disease. But there hasn't been this reckoning yet where we put everything together and understand how the diseases are similar and overlapping and different in order that they might be named more properly. I'm fortunate enough that in my work, I'm able to go to certain medical conferences. So I get to sit in on the presentations by IBD experts. And what some of them have presented is a naming convention that is something more like IBD 1, 2, 3, 4, something like that, rather than the Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis, indeterminate colitis. And in that way, they would be stratifying it. in, in And I can't tell you exactly what would fall 
under each of those headings. It's certainly not something that's being used or accepted right now. So it's hopefully something that's in the future, and I hope the near future, because I really feel as though the naming conventions that we're using right now are not serving patients, and they're not serving physicians, because the IBD experts know what's going on, and it was IBD experts who explained it to me the way that I just explained it to you, but not every gastroenterologist is an IBD expert. So until we have a brand new way of looking at these diseases that is more comprehensive and takes into account more things, I think we're all at a little bit of a disadvantage. At the same time, we have the situation with the Food and Drug Administration where they they can't approve a drug for nothing. They have to approve it for a something. It has to be for an accepted disease. IBD is not a disease. That's the umbrella term that we use for all of us that fall underneath it. So until we've got that, we've got the situation where you have a drug that's approved for one condition and under IBD, for instance, it's approved for Crohn's disease, which in some cases, that seems to be the way that it goes. Things get first approved for Crohn's disease in adults, and then it might get approved for ulcerative colitis in adults, and then hopefully somewhere along the line, it gets approved for pediatric So that's why we all need to get a diagnosis in order to get treated, because using a drug for something that it's not approved for by the Food and Drug Administration is called off-label use, and that's kind of frowned upon. It's done, of course, but, um, you know, they don't really like it. So that's kind of the conundrum that we're in here until we get a better naming convention. And, And I have to be honest with you, I don't even know... If anyone is working on this, like, I don't even know what the status of it is. Um, When we get together at medical conferences or any time that myself or one of the other advocates that I work with can grab a specialist, we definitely talk about this. It's something that we ask about. When are we going to get away from these buckets and when are we going to get towards something that's more comprehensive and understandable? Because the other thing is, is with the label of ulcerative colitis, as I was explaining, you can lose your colon, but the disease isn't gone. It's in your genes. So I've had it said to me, well, you can't have colitis anymore. You don't have a colon. Therefore, you don't have ulcerative colitis. Okay. Yes, technically. The word colitis means inflammation in the colon. That is true. There are very few things I can't do. Getting inflammation in my colon is one of them because I don't have one anymore. So I would agree with that. But I still have IBD. It's not gone. So this way of identifying the diseases is increasingly being understood as problematic, but we're not a place yet where it this is being sort of worked on and corrected and dealt with. Um, I think where this is also challenging is the people who have indeterminate colitis. And that can be up to 15% of people, which to me is mind-blowing. That's a lot. That's big. That's not like an outlying thing that 
is a rare thing. And by the way, IBD is a common condition. So 15% of people with indeterminate colitis is a lot of people. And these folks, there are several of them on Twitter that I've been in contact with over the years. They often are treated with the same drugs that are for ulcerative colitis, but they're sort of permanently in this limbo because the indeterminate colitis is not really a diagnosis. So in addition, folks that are coping with indeterminate colitis really need an IBD specialist, and that's not in the cards for everybody. Not everybody lives near an IBD center. However, if we moved into this realm where we're looking at it's all IBD and we're stratifying it under that and looking at it in different ways, maybe with different inflammatory pathways or what section of the bowel is involved or however the scientists decide to do that, I think we'd all be better off. And so this is why it has now taken me more than 10 minutes to tell you what form of IBD I have because I'm going to tell you I have IBD. Moving on, finally, to Megan's second question. Why is IBD advocacy important? Okay, kids, get off my lawn. I've had IBD for almost 30 years. There's a lot of things that went on in the way back when. Um, Nobody talked about IBD, that's for sure. If you mentioned it to someone, they would probably not know what you were talking about, or they would say something like, oh, I have that, meaning IBS, or perhaps colitis. Colitis, as I said earlier, just means inflammation of the colon. That can occur with a lot of different things, and it can also go away, unless, of course, you have ulcerative colitis, which is for life. And since I've seen how things have changed over the years, I understand why IBD advocacy is important, because the more people spoke up, the more people spoke out, the more that we were able to get past this stigma and this idea that people with IBD have mental problems and that they're causing their disease by stress and eating the wrong thing, and that's why that it happened, and that you can cure it by doing all sorts of goofy things that, you know, none of which have any evidence that they work. Some of them have been studied and have been proven not to work. And yet in the sort of public zeitgeist, people still think that these things are occurring. Not only that, but even in 1999, when I had my J-pouch surgery, which meant that I had an ileostomy for only three months because I had two-step surgery was an extremely short period of time to have an ileostomy, and I told no one. I told no one why I was having my surgery. I told no one why I was having a second surgery. That was a fun conversation with my boss. He literally looked at me and said, what happened? Did they leave something inside and they have to go back and retrieve it? I didn't answer that question because honestly, it was none of his business. It was actually pretty funny. I wasn't offended. But um, explaining to somebody why you're having two major surgeries over the course of six months and need to be out of work for a long time is not an easy thing to do. We also did not have the Affordable Care Act at that time. 
What that meant was you could be discriminated against for having a pre-existing condition. So your insurance company could drop you. All sorts of things could happen, and all of those things did happen to me. And so I kept my mouth a shut. Then I started working for about.com in the year 2000 and sweated it. I may be the first person in the history of ever, however, to get a full-time job based on my side hustle. And it all worked out for the best in the end. But I was sure even at that time when I was applying for jobs, I was certain someone was going to search for me and find my site and say, nope. What did happen is someone searched for me and found my site and realized I had something to bring to the table. And it helped me get hired. And so that is why IBD advocacy is important to me. And now, all you kids, you can come back on my lawn because we have a few more questions to answer. Third question, describe a socially awkward moment with IBD. There are so many. There are so many. I can't even begin to like sift through them in my brain to come up with one. Like it took me a while to settle on one. Um, and the one that I have settled on is what happened after my first surgery. So after my colectomy with J pouch creation and placement of a loop ileostomy. So what this means is I had the ileostomy, I had the stoma, was wearing a bag, and I also had a J pouch. It's just that the J pouch wasn't hooked up. I got up one day. I remember I was by myself. So it had to have been uh, two to three weeks after I had the colectomy because there was someone with me for the first couple of weeks at home to sort of watch out for me and make sure I didn't like take some Vicodin and burn the house down trying to make some soup. So I was by myself and I was having stomach cramps. And when I say stomach, I do. I mean stomach. That's where it felt that it was. And it was pretty bad. Okay, I'm thinking maybe I'm dehydrated. I'm drinking water. I'm reading the materials that they gave me. What could this be? And it was episodic. So I would have a a cramp and it would bother me and then it would go away and then it would come back. It didn't really feel like it would be a blockage, something like that. So I do what you should do. I call my surgeon. I'm explaining it to them and I'm saying, gosh, and I'm drinking all this water and I don't really understand what this could be. Okay, fine. They say, um, come on in. So I go into my colorectal surgeon's office, and that was always fun also. Um, I was 26 at the time, always the youngest person in there by far. And I remember walking in and them saying to me, gosh, you don't look like you had surgery. Um, You know, and now that I'm thinking about it, it must have been at least four weeks after my surgery because I drove myself. So I'm there, I'm in the surgeon's office, and he says, okay, I'm going to, I want to look at your pouch because, you know, what could this be? So I get on the table, lay on my left side, and then he gets whatever, I think he got a catheter or whatever, you know, whatever he was going to look at my pouch with. And he goes to look at my pouch, and I hear a little bit of a kerfluffle behind me. Obviously, I can't see what's going on behind me. And he suddenly, um, sort of like moved back 
a little bit. This was because there was something that I didn't know. And I've since written about it for verywell.com because it comes up so often in Facebook groups and on Twitter where people say, gosh, I feel like I have to sit on the toilet, but I have an ileostomy. And why is that? That is because in my case, I had my J pouch and those parts were connected, even though they weren't connected all the way up, they're still connected at the, you know, at my anus at my bottom. So they are living tissue and they continue to make mucus and all of the things that they make, which they're supposed to do. So if you don't sit down on the toilet and expel the mucus, it's just going to sit in there and build up. So what happened was, is my poor surgeon put in that catheter, or I don't know if it was a a sigmoidoscope or whatever that he was going to look at my J-pouch, and out came all of the mucus. I think it got on his shoe. And he was so gracious about it and didn't make me feel embarrassed at all, uh, which was good because I was mortified mortified. I mean, I didn't know what was going on, though. I wasn't warned. Now, of course, my surgeon had a great way of doing things that I liked that you would see him in the exam room and whatever you needed to do would get done in there, you know, taking staples out or checking your stoma, what have you. And then you would meet him in his office. You'd be dressed. You could have a conversation like two adults and one of you isn't naked. So I liked that about how he ran his practice. So I come into his office, I'm mortified, and he explains to me all of this, that, um, you know, there could be, you know, there's still stuff going on because it's living tissue. And if you feel the need that you need to sit on the toilet and expel it. And it was all in there and it was bothering me. And that's why I was feeling the cramping. And it's kind of the same as what I would experience now if I have to go to the bathroom and I need to empty my J pouch and I'm perhaps overdue. It's kind of like this cramping sensation. I know that now, but it was, it's not the same as when you, uh, someone with a colon in in an intact rectum feels the need to go to the bathroom. It's slightly different than that. Uh, but you, but but similar enough that you still understand that that's what it is. But I had no idea that I should be sitting on the toilet and doing anything. I just, you know, was emptying my ileostomy bag like normal and going about my business. Anyway, that's my story of one of the most socially awkward moments with my IBD, although it is by far not the only one. And of course, because I still have IBD. Socially awkward moments still happen from time to time. And that leads us to our fourth question. What is a common stigma you run into? Name an IBD stigma, and I'm sure that I've experienced it, but I'm going to focus on one that I'm currently experiencing to a pretty high degree and experienced in the past as well. When I was a teenager and I was very ill, and I talked about this with Jamie Weinstein 
in the episode about uh, Jamie shopping for wedding dresses and how that has gone for her. So I was very thin and that was all acceptable. People would say, you're so skinny, I wish I could be skinny like that, so on and so forth. And of course, I was not healthy in the least, but to them, I looked healthy because of my weight. And I'm getting a lot now, and I got then, of the, you don't look sick. Well, that's very nice. I'm glad I don't look sick. If there were pictures of me when I was in the hospital and I was very ill, it would tell a different story. I remember someone coming in to talk to me once and telling me that I actually looked gray. And when I was on sulfasalazine when I was a teenager and young adult, that kind of gave my skin sort of an unusual tone to it, kind of this orangey tone. I think people kind of thought like I had a tan, but that wasn't the case. It was the medication. And that also is one of those things that people tend to associate with health, even though that tanning is bad. If you have IBD, tanning is very bad. Don't tan. The end. And so the you don't look sick. Well, on the one hand, I appreciate that I don't look bad. Um, nobody wants to look bad. Nobody wants to look sick. But on the other hand, just because I can pull myself together and put on some makeup and do my hair and get out the door doesn't mean that I'm doing better. And I realize that's a really difficult concept for healthy people to understand. And I don't expect them to necessarily understand it, but it's a little bit of a standoff at times because that will be said to me, oh, you look like you're doing better or you don't look sick. And I'll think to myself, well, you know, you didn't see me yesterday and you're not going to see me later tonight. You're seeing me right now when I've managed to pull it together. And it's not their fault, but it is very frustrating because Obviously, I don't have half an hour to explain to them why I don't look sick right now and everything that I went through in order to not look sick. When I go to see my doctors, I usually don't put on makeup and I will just, you know, put on a t-shirt and whatever and go and see them. I don't dress the way that I normally do when I'm going somewhere, which is... um even though I'm a freelancer, I still tend to dress most days like I'm going to an office. But when I see my physicians, I don't do that because I want them to see what I look like. I want them to see what my skin looks like. I want them to see what my eyes look like. I want them to see what my under eyes look like because I think that that's important for them to assess me and to get a good idea of what's going on with me and whether or not I actually am feeling okay or whether something else is going on. And so for me, the you don't look sick is the most common stigma that I run into. This brings us to our fifth and final question. What do you want other people to understand about IBD? I think what I want people to understand about IBD actually doesn't have anything necessarily to do with the disease. 
Although I'm always happy to explain things about the disease to people, and I'm always so grateful when people ask questions. What I want them to understand is that you don't have to treat people with IBD any differently than you would treat anyone else. Even if we're not doing well, and we tell you that we're not doing well, being treated differently isn't something that people with IBD want. We all want to work. We have goals. We have dreams. We have ambitions. We want to travel. We want to go out. We want to participate in our children's lives. We want to volunteer. We want to do all of these things. There might be times when it's not possible. And I think a good way of putting it to people is that I'm not an unreliable person, but my IBD is unreliable. So for sure, there might end up being canceled plans. I think that the people around have to understand that a little bit. And it's only been probably the last several years of my life that I've started calling people out on that when they do it to me. Because I don't see why I should be treated any differently than anyone else or why my friends with IBD should be any different than anyone else. So I think that's the thing that I would probably want people to understand more than anything else because it's not crucial to be friends with a person with IBD to totally understand everything about the disease. It's more important people understand that you still want to have a social life and you still want to be involved and your life hasn't stopped and your dreams haven't changed because you've received this diagnosis. It's even stranger for me personally to be the one that says to somebody, hey, what the heck? But I think it's important to have those difficult conversations at times because then everything comes out and then you can sort of deal with it and say, you know, knock that mess off. And so this concludes my answers to the five IBD advocacy tag questions. I'm tagging you. If you've not spoken about your IBD, blogged about it, made a video about it, made a recording about it, I want you to think about answering these questions. You don't have to publish it. That's not required. Believe me, I have lots of things that are written and some that are recorded that I've not published. But I want you to think about these questions and answer them. If the time is right for you to tell your story, you can then use what you've produced and tell the world. But until then, get it all down. Get it all out. See where it takes you. Thanks for listening. This makes you a super listener for getting to the end of the show. And I love my super listeners. Don't forget to subscribe in iTunes or Google Play or wherever it is that you listen to your podcasts. And you can visit me at verywell.com. Search for anything about IBD in the search box and you'll probably find something that I've written come 
You will also find me on Twitter, on Facebook, and on Instagram as About IBD. Keep watching, especially Twitter, for our IBD Moms chats, which we're doing monthly, and the IBD Social Circle chats, which are about every other month. When there's one coming up, I will absolutely let you know when it is happening. And remember, I want you to know more about IBD. IBD.